Georgia Georgia The whole day through Just an old sweet song Okay, so I am here once again with the cover girl of Bat Segundo. <laughs> Tiari Jones here to talk about Silver Sparrow. Tiari, how are you doing? Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm always glad to be on your show. Yeah. Well, I wanted to first of all start. This is your third novel set in Atlanta. Um, I'm wondering, are there limitless novels that are contained in any one city? Uh, are there advantages in writing about a place where you haven't lived for quite a while? Or? There, every every city has limit, limitless stories in that one city. It's just a matter if you know where to look for them. And um, I write about Atlanta because it's where I'm from, and I feel that I can write in a layered way. Like if I write about a street, I know what that street was named before it was what it was named. And even just tracing that kind of shows the different ways Atlanta has changed. And I don't know that about another city. And so I think that for that, Atlanta is the best place for for me to write stories. And the fact that I haven't lived there is starting to catch up with me. I think there may be a finite number of Atlanta stories to be written between 1970 and 1991 when I left, and I might be running out of those. On the other hand, you could also embark on a parallel universe, so to speak. I mean, you know, we are talking about fiction, so maybe uh, the limits are only the perceived ones. Well, then, but the only thing is that I perceive them, so it still stops me. Well, um, I understand the shift from Dana to Charisse was unplanned. This leads me to ask, to what degree was Charisse in your mind when you were working with Dana? Was there a lengthy overlap in time between writing part one and part two? Uh, was there an instant switch? Or? Okay, the first half of the novel is from the point of view of Dana, yeah. who is James Witherspoon's um, illegitimate daughter, his yeah. secret daughter. I hate using that word illegitimate. It's so hurtful, but it kind of captures how she feels about herself. Yeah. And I was really interested in her life and what it was like to know that you're a secret. And I felt like I kind of tap that out but the story wasn't done like I felt I had done whatever I was going to accomplish for her emotionally but the story was not done and then I just wrote a couple paragraphs from Charisse's point of view and I realized there was a whole different story there I wasn't planning for it but the story wasn't done and my mentor Ron Carlson used to say he said Tiari do whatever you have to do to survive the draft like whatever technique you have to do to get to the end of the story. He was saying you could always come back and revise it. And to survive the draft, to get to the end of the story, I had to use Charisse's voice. I didn't know if I was going to keep it or how it was going to turn out, but I knew that would get me over the finish line. And once I go over the finish line, I could figure out how to make it work. Why not Dana's voice? I mean, certainly. I just tapped her out. She was tapped out. She had her moment where her life had changed, and that was the end for her. I didn't have anything else to say from her voice until the very last chapter. Yeah. And I rewrote that last chapter from the point of view of every character in the story. Uh-huh. I was like, who, who's best to wrap this up? Yeah. And I decided it was Dana because she had the most to lose. Well, this also leads me to ask you about Raleigh uh, because he, to me and to many other people, seems to be one of the really, one of the most moving characters in the book. On the other hand, uh, if we apply Hemingway's iceberg theory, he could be meaningful because the reader is likely to infer any, any number of emotional ambiguity in order to sort of access 
I mean, it seems to me that you must have invented such an extended family and such a detailed family to get that level of ambiguity. Am, am, I, am I right in uh, inferring the create, creativity here? Or? I mean, I did throw out a lot of pages, but I always throw out a pages. Um, my, my MFA students laugh at me because I'm always quote, quoting Ron Carlson. Yeah, yeah. But Carlson used to say, <laughs> I know, I do this all the time. He would say there are two kinds of writers. They're gushers and eakers. Yeah. And eakers are the ones like Snoopy who agonize and agonize and then write the word the. We gushers, we work it all out on the page. Yeah. So I wrote, I probably wrote, to, this book is about what, 350 pages? I probably wrote about 900 pages to get them. Um, and I work, but when I'm writing to work out, work things out, I don't know that I'm working them out. I think I'm writing. Yeah. And then I realized that, oh, I was just working it out. It's almost like when you're in like a rebound relationship, you think it's a real relationship until you look back on it and you realize you're on the rebound. Yes. And I feel like writing Raleigh, he had some chapters of his own. Yeah. I thought it was going to be in the book, but it wasn't. It was just backstory. On the other hand, there's a lot here to use. Did this motivate some of the other moments such as Miss Bunny and the like that you had to salvage at least something from the 900 pages and even get it down so you can rescue a few paragraphs for this over time? I don't even think I think about it that way. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't really look at it as salvaging. I look at it as like finding the story. Um, I think of it when I write a novel as like topiary animals. Yeah. You know, you don't grow that an you don't grow that bush in the shape of a dinosaur. You grow a wild, unmanageable bush and you trim it to a dinosaur. And so I think when I'm doing all the 900 pages, I'm just growing this wild, unmanageable hedge. And then I decide, do I want it to be shaped like a dinosaur, you know, do I want it to be shaped like a monkey? Like I have options. And so I'm making my I'm making my canvas when I write the 900 pages. Yeah. It's probably mixing the metaphor up somewhere, but that's what I, like this like the fabric and then I cut out the shape. But can you really control the topiary shape to extend this metaphor further? Or? I can once I have the, all the gajillion pages. Yeah, yeah. I read it and I see what's hot. I see I can I can like feel the hot parts and I say, oh, that's a hot part. That's a hot part. That's a hot part. Yeah. And then I figure out how to use them all together, and it usually is a shape. But there's also seductive hot parts, hot parts that seem as if they're hot, but uh, aren't always hot or don't contribute to the actual whole of the time. But you know, it's true, but they cool off for me. Like, really, by the time I'm done, every part is a hot part. Like, I don't have any parts of this book that I threw out that I mourned, that, I, oh, I love that. Yeah. It's like I just realized that they weren't hot. Because also, I think at this stage, what I want at the end is a good-looking novel. I want to finish a good-looking novel. So if I end up with a good-looking novel, I am not going to cry for some 20 pages in the shredder somewhere. Yeah. Because I've got a good-looking novel, yes. and that's what I wanted. I also wanted to ask you about James's stuttering. I mean, this was a very interesting character quality because here's a man who has two wives, and it seems almost as if he's stuttering wives. And so I'm uh, curious about when the stuttering entered into the uh, equation of his character. Was it, uh, was it there all along, or did it come as you were writing the dialogue? James always had a stammer. I, d I knew that I didn't want him to be like a smooth operator with two wives, two kids. Yeah. I wanted him to be kind of an awkward person with, in, in a way with his two wives and embarrassment of riches. Like he basically can't believe he had one wife, now he has two wives. And so his stammer just came to me as this kind of awkwardness for him. I don't remember coming up with it. It's always been just a part of him. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that came later for him was his profession as a driver. And um, that came later. He needed something to do. He needed something to do that would allow him to have these two wives. And I was thinking, oh, he's a driver. And I like the idea of him being an entrepreneur because I think I'm attracted in stories because I have one in Leaving Atlanta of these men who are their own, who are their own bosses. They're not rich, but they're their own, bo own bosses, this kind of autonomous man. The self-made men. Yeah. Yes, exactly. 
you know, and they get written up in the local paper in small articles. Like, they have lives to be proud of, but they're not rich. I like to, and I like my characters to work. I like my characters to have jobs. I hate the way in so much American fiction, you have no idea how these people are supporting themselves. Every person in this story has a job. Or worse yet, you have the protagonist be a writer or an artist or some sort of uh, stand-in for the actual writer who's writing the Or you book. give them some crazy inheritance so, the, so that the story can happen. Like, you need your character to take a nine-day, a nine-year trip. So yeah. you have to give them an inheritance to take the trip, which makes them in a different class. Yeah. I think that real stories happen as people work. I know my, my life, my life is happening and I work every day, so I like to write characters that work as well. This uh, also leads me to ask, did you uh, contact any bigamists, whether of uh, past or present practitioners? Or? No, no, I don't know any bigamists, but you know... The thing about having people having these half-siblings who share a father, I know a lot of people, I call them silver sparrows, I know a lot of silver sparrows, and I have talked to a number of them. Everywhere I go, I meet one. I meet one, since this book has not even been out, since it's just been kind of in the world that people know it exists, I get emails from people that say, I'm a silver sparrow, my father had another family. And I'm interested in this idea of how do you evaluate a father? Because there are a lot of men with more than one set of children, and the different children have a different relationship. Just the other day at the Florida Festival, a woman said to me that she had written on Facebook her status on Father's Day. You know, happy Father's Day to amazing dad, la, 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 la. And she saw her sister, who has the same father, a different mother. And for her status, she wrote, I never had a father because the coward wasn't there. And it's the same man. Yeah. Is he a good man or not? You know, is it, how do you judge him? Do you judge him the way that he treats his best child, the way he behaves best, the way he behaves worse? Do you, like, come up with the arithmetic mean? What do you mean? What do you do? And this is, I mean, so many people have this issue. I'm curious also, you approach bigamy from the vantage point of, well, this is a, a pack of lies. On the other hand, what is a novelist but someone who also promulgates a pack of lies? Who, who's not, worse? I, who is worse, a novelist or a bigamy? I do not say that this bigamy is a pack of lies. I, I think I approach bigamy as this kind of practical. He's not lying to everybody. He's not lying to his, to his second wife. So it's not a pack of lies. It's a pack that involves lies. But it's not a pack of lies. He is Dana's father. Dana has a father. A lot of girls in Dana's position never know their father. She has a father. And her mother would say, that counts for something. And I think it does. But the question is, what does it count for? And yes, his wife, Laverne, no doubt, she will feel betrayed when she finds out that her husband has another wife. But she had a husband, and she had a life that she enjoyed. She lived a good life. Is it to say it would be better that she not have had that life? So I feel that, I don't know. I feel like the rules, I don't know. I don't know where... It follows. James says, love isn't going to always follow the rule book, which is a line I took from this, like, ridiculous boyfriend I once had to explain his bad behavior. Uh -huh. He was like, love's not going to follow a rule book, baby. And I was thinking, that's crazy. Your behavior is unacceptable. But I do think on some level he is right that people improvise their lives. Yeah. So this ex accounts for most of the masculine swagger of the book, uh, plucked from uh, former... Paramours and the like. Some of the ridiculousness, it, and I am not a vengeful writer. Yeah. But no, I, no, you but just, I have, I'm just saying you steal but, but from I, everything. But yeah. I have been told some ridiculous things yeah. in my life, and I did plop some of them in there. I just couldn't resist. Yeah. And they don't read, they'll never know. 
Charisse's perspective is very much guided by time. It's clear with the dates in the first chapter, a peculiar start, but it also continues throughout. Mary walked in on a Tuesday evening, opening the door at 7.30. Very, very specific. Whereas with Dana, her perspective seems to be guided more by people or, or situational relationships. I, I don't know if this was a conscious effort on your part, but I was curious uh, uh, to use this as a jumping off point about how you've, you formed the, the distinct differences between these two perspectives. It was very hard to make the two voices. Dana and Charisse are sisters. They're the same age. They live in the same town, which and they have the same dad. They have a and they have the same uncle. They're going to have a lot in common, yeah. so their voices are necessarily going to be really similar. They're going to share an idiom. So I had to make them distinct by really leaning into their personalities to make their voice. So Dana, she is guided by people and feelings because she's saying her point, I think, of her thing is, listen, this is what happened to me and my mother. She has an argument to make. Don't blame us, or it's not like you think. So that's what really drives her. Charisse is more like, you will not believe what happened. That's kind of more her thing. Like, you will, I, here I was living a normal life, and you will not believe what happened. And that kind of story is more like, and this happened, then that happened, then that happened. And Dana's is more like, it's so complicated. Yeah. First this happened, and oh, I can't, I have to tell you about this other person. Like she's all, she's trying to make a case for herself. As she says, she's trying to press words forward in her own defense. Well, I mean, when did you know that, okay, Sharice definitely has her own particular voice. I mean, it's, a, it's an abrupt shift from one perspective to another. Even though they match and even though they are related, uh, at what point did you feel that Sharice had definitely jumped off of this sort of called Dana Railroad track. Um, I guess I knew Charisse was Charisse, that she was going to stay in the book, that I was on to something. Maybe when she met Dana and she was so impressed with Dana, I was like, wow. Because, you know, poor Dana. Dana thinks, oh, poor me. I'm the outside child. Nobody loves me. I can't have anything I want. And, da and Charisse sees her as like, wow, that's the most amazing girl I've ever seen. I want to be my best friend. When I realized that, I was like, they see the world so differently, and it's not mirroring. It's completely different, and that's when I thought, okay, we're on to something. Let's go, let's go. Let's see. Let's take it and just run it out and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to ask, uh, because longtime T.R.A. Jones readers or people who have followed you over the years know of your obsession for Toni Morrison. Um, and you mentioned in a recent Bookslut interview that you have absolutely no distance from her because you love her so much in your teaching. Does Toni Morrison's influence pose a problem in, in terms of fiction writing? Uh, when you write about the Pink Fox, surely you're going to have Lily's Beauty Parlor from Song of Solomon's probably in your head as well. Where do you stave off the inevitable idea of influence in terms of particularly for an author you admire? I have no boundaries between me and Toni Morrison, none. Mm -mm. She came to Rutgers and I wanted to sit in her lap. It was ridiculous. You go and knock on her door, and you just want to hang out with her all day. I totally would. Like, oh, she's my, got a restraining order. Against my her. students laugh about it. My students laugh about it. I mean, I am. I just have no. This the class was very strange because we basically just held hands and talked about how much we love Toni Morrison, and that was fine with me. I think everyone should do that. So that said, I don't worry you about. You held hands with Toni Morrison. I did. Yeah. How long? <laughs> Briefly. And I, I patted her shoulder, and I, I pushed. I just, I just spent so much time with her. I played with her grandchildren. It was. I just admire her so much because I love her work. And when she won the Nobel Prize, I felt the way other people felt. When you know when Obama was elected, people were crying in the streets. Yeah. I had to pull my car over when I heard on NPR, and I sobbed. Yeah. 
that was a moment for me. So I don't worry about influence. I don't worry about it at all. You can't accidentally be too influenced by Toni Morrison. You are not going to accidentally write anything that is going to remotely resemble Toni Morrison. I'm like, do not even worry about it. It can't happen. Yeah. But has this ever been an issue in terms of your work? I mean, every writer, every artist has to stop from copying the masters or copying the greats. She's or copying. uncopyable. Yeah. I think Toni Morrison is the only person that I'm like this about. Yeah. And she's uncopyable. She's, you can't. So I don't worry about it. I wish that someone would accuse me of copying Toni Morrison. As I said, I have my, my, my feelings for her are unreasonable. They are um, deep. And it just, it's just a quirk that I just have to live with. Well, how unreasonable are they aside from holding her hand? I think that to the point that I couldn't really be critical of her in the class. I could not. We A three-hour workshop once a week. I had like maybe one mild criticism. I hadn't, I just couldn't. I, the work means so much to me on the page and where her position and her biography and all the, the way that she's a citizen of the writing world. I felt protective of her as though she were, like if my grandmother were a genius, that's how I felt, like she was my genius grandmother. And I, I couldn't talk about it. And luckily the students, I have this reputation, so people came to the class understanding. Yeah that about me there was one person who was kind of giving a little pushback but by the end we had we had just abducted him i was gonna say i mean what happens if, if an ardent tony morrison uh, loather were to actually a hater a detractor <laughs> yeah one of the haters we had we, like, i wouldn't say guys he was, like bloom or something yeah i would say he wasn't a hater but we had a little resistance but by the end yeah. one big happy family morrison is like that it's yeah irresistible morrison can unite all literary folks yes she okay. can all right Jimmy Carter is evoked a number of times in this book. I had to bring this up. There's his infamous interview with Playboy, Playboy, of course, in which he said he had lust in his heart. Charisse's mother says that she likes the last part about people not judging each other. Then you have James, named after Jimmy Carter, later saying, Carter was a good man, but he didn't exactly make you want to go out and hire a limousine for your kid's <laughs> birthday party. And then in answer to that, you have Raleigh, offer the Carter-like sentiments, I'll admit that I enjoy a nice cardigan. But in general, I am a simple man with simple taste. The suggestion, I think, with this is that the mood of these characters is in some sense influenced by history. I, I'm curious about how this, uh, the subconscious Carter influence upon these characters entered into the equation. Uh, was it just a matter of, well, hey, I happen to be uh, in the time of Carter, I should uh, probably uh, give well, my nod to what's going on? Or, or did you really want to sort of show how a certain kind of masculinity or even the way people lived was very much influenced by the actions of a president. Well, Jimmy Carter was from Georgia. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. he was our president and he was in the and that um Playboy interview was huge. Yeah. But we thought about Jimmy Carter a lot in Atlanta. I remember when I was a little girl, I remember he was the first it was the first presidential election I could remember. So that I remembered and when Carter was out, Reagan was in. Yeah. And Reagan and Dynasty, like the era really changed, yeah. and that is why people are hiring limousines for their kids. Like everyone wanted to live in Dynasty, and Jimmy Carter was like the, the kind of practical, hardworking, salt of the earth of the past. So I did bring him in that way. But when I was a little girl, I was really into Jimmy Carter and all the, the whole peanut farming, found it fascinating. So it's probably my own memory of my child self being influenced by Carter and giving that influence to the to the characters. This also explains the jelly beans, no doubt, as well. Well, see, and see, Jimmy, that was Reagan's jelly beans. Yeah, yes. yeah, 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 Ra yeah. Jelly beans came in vogue in yeah. the in the 1980s, expensive jelly beans, and so I put them all in there because I do try to make. I feel like the world is changing so fast that 
even though the 80s is recent history, that if someone doesn't write it down, no one will remember what happened yeah. in the 80s, and let alone to characters like mine, black people living on the southwest side of Atlanta. So yeah. I'm trying to like re remember every, everything I can remember and use it in my fiction. So essentially, all novels are histories then. If you're going to capture any kind of perspective, it has to be historical, essentially. I mean, I'm, I like to, for me, I think, I think different novels do different things, but if it's in the 80s, it has to be, it can't just be in the character's head. I, nothing I can't stand more when I read a story and my students say, oh, it could be said in any time in any place. Yeah. That drives me nuts. Drives me, it makes me sarcastic, and I'm never sarcastic, but it makes me sarcastic. I get so tired of that. Oh, really? You're not sarcastic? See, cut that out. See, you made me sarcastic, but... I think that if it's going to be in the 80s, it has to really be in the 80s, and it has to be grounded. And it has to be grounded to the point that if someone were to come back 100 years later and want to know what the 80s are like, they have to be able to know from the work. Yeah. Or else you haven't done your job. Got it. What about the name Yarborough? I was curious about where you got that from. Bastard out of Carolina was the one place I found, but I'm, I'm curious. Did you find that in a book or some you know, I, I phone knew, book or anything? I knew some Yarboroughs. I try to oh, only yeah. use last names that I know mm -hmm. because, again, trying to make this history. Um, I knew some Yarboroughs when I was coming up, and I just like so many syllables, Yarborough. Yeah. Yeah. And also, um, and you can spell it in all these different ways. I just liked it. Dana Lynn Yarborough, Gwen Yarborough. I just like it. Yeah. Well, to go back to what you were saying about you have to know the time of the place where a novel is set. Well, you have two narrators here who are recalling events that they didn't experience and they didn't witness. Yes. So, um, so what of this interesting conundrum? This led me, when I was reading it, to sort of say, well, I'm not sure if this is entirely real. Maybe this is some mythology they've created in their mind to better understand their families. Or... Well, I think that we often speak with authority about things that happened before we were born. I can speak with authority authority about the way my parents met. They met at an NAACP meeting at, in Champaign, Illinois. My mother was wearing a tight sweater. She disagreed with my father. She walked out of the meeting. Daddy, she walked out and she flounced out of the meeting. And she paused, waiting to hear if he would follow her, and he didn't. So she went back in the meeting and she re-flounced out. He didn't follow. She flounced out again. And then she heard his steps behind her and then she walked really fast with a clickety-clack of high heels, but not too fast, and he caught her and asked her out. And that's how I came to be. So it's the way that I, under, but I feel like I was there, even though I've never seen my mother in a tight sweater, ever. So I believe that we tell our parents' courtship stories with authority, but I also believe that our parents' courtship stories are our first exposure to propaganda. Yeah. Well, essentially, it's the Liberty Valance maxim when the truth, be, you know, print the legend, essentially, yes. instead of the truth. And, and you, prefer, you prefer to print the legend? Well, in every one of my novels, the characters talk about the way their parents met. Yeah. Because it's the way you understand how you came to be. Yeah, you're probably absolutely wrong because your parents mold it for whatever they want you to think about yeah. who you are. But it is interesting because these two girls are basically, they don't entirely know the full extent of everything. No so one they have knows this, the full extent of their parents' yeah. lives. They know, don't know them in the present, but they do know them in the past based off of the mythology, which may or may not be real. Right. Yeah. Yes. But even in the, yeah, but in, anything you know about your parents, you don't know. You, their parents are unknowable for everyone, whether they're big, as Dana says, you know, even people whose parents are married to each other and no one else, even these people have their share of unhappiness. So fiction would seem to be the best way to chronicle the unknowable with absolute certainty. Yes, but I think that people... There are so many people. I've talked to people about this idea that you can never know your parents, and they get mad at me. I know my parents. They're people who think they know their parents. Well, I want to also ask you, Dana and Charisse, they're both 
trying to chart out a normal life amidst this fractious family dynamic. And uh, the text, to my mind, seems to mimic the idea where you have this deceptively simple and seemingly normal voice masking a very complicated situation. Um, I'm wondering how much of this attention to text, I mean, you know, did, did you, were you aware of any kind of connection? Was the text trying to mimic this emotional idea or was it something that you just went completely intuitively on? It's just how Charisse talks. Yeah. She's a simple girl. She's a simple girl. Something crazy happened to her, but she's just a kind of, She's kind of a basic young lady, and she's just writing about, she's t- talking about how she, how she perceived things. The situation is complicated, but she's not. Yeah. So she just works with the language she has, with the understanding she has, yeah. and the people she has in her life. Now they are something else. I wanted to also talk about your obsession with fingers in this. Uh, in uh, Fingers? I thought yes. you were going to ask me about my obsession with hair. Oh, well, no, that's the easy thing. All of the <laughs> other interviewers talk about the hair. But in Miss Bunny's bedroom, you described the only ornament was a porcelain ring holder in the shape of two fingers displaying what looked like a man's wedding band. James, likewise, has this tendency to lick his fingers. Charisse's mother licks her finger and touches the curling iron. Well, that's the only way you yeah. can manage a curling well, iron. Well, of course, but... Raleigh puts his finger to his lips like a watchful librarian. A finger is something to tie it in with the hair that you would use in a beauty salon, but that you would also use for your wedding band. So I'm curious if uh, fingers kind of cropped up subconsciously or if this was something you noticed over the course of the... Uh, the drafts and you said oh well why don't we play up the fingers it's a nice little uh, symbol or a metaphor here i never thought of those fingers i mean i think i just was being really practical like when raleigh puts his hand on his fingers over his lips he doesn't want her to talk there's no other way to say be quiet from a distance because you're out on a date with your father with your brothers with your almost brother's almost wife in front of his real daughter like, you know, what can you do? You have to, only thing you can do is put your fingers to your lips. I didn't think much about it in that way. I just try to really, when I write a novel, imagine what the people are actually doing. I like to lose myself. I like to forget that I'm writing. I often reread my own work and see stuff I didn't see. This is um, an example. I realized that Raleigh is the uncle to my character, Arya, in The Untelling. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that until I finished it, but Raleigh says that he went to visit his mother, you know, the, his mother from whom he's estranged, and that she had another son named Lincoln. And maybe he's from, maybe he was born in Nebraska, but he doesn't know. And Arya's father is named Lincoln, and Arya's grandmother was named Lula because her mother said, my father wanted to name me Lula. And I was like, oh my goodness, they're related to Arya. Yeah. But what can you do? Arya will never know. Because I never knew. I wanted to uh, talk about what we were mentioning earlier about this momentous draft and getting to the end of the draft that Ron Carlson mentioned. Um, I happen to know that uh, I seem to remember, you know, from reading the website, seeing the triumphant YouTube video that, uh, well, there was a bit of procrastination there. There was some, Triumphant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, triumphant, like, I finished the, and of course, the wonderful picture of you with your legs in the air, (laughs) you know, basically, I'm done with my manuscript. Um, I have to ask, based off of this, you you indicated that um, when you go on tour, you want to actually follow Ron Carlson's advice and write one word a day so that you can say to yourself, well, I am not just a 
person who's hawking the book, I'm also a writer. Um, in light of the, the procrastination, which I, I think was in fact there, based off of what I was, I was into getting from the, from the blog and from the video, I mean... I wasn't procrastinating, I was depressed. You were depressed? That's different. Okay. Procrastinating is hanging out with your friends. Oh, depressed I see. is like a crisis, a dark night. I won't say depressed, because I think I hate it when people use clinical terms to mean casual things, but I was very anxious and I felt that I was very worried about the way publishing was going. Um, my earlier publisher had been sold. They were doing different things. My editor had an imprint that was a lot more commercial. I felt that my book wasn't going to have a home. And I, I honestly, the truth of the matter is, and I, blog, I finally wrote about this. I didn't blog about this at the time yeah. because I think I was ashamed or embarrassed or anxious. But I had sent this manuscript out on 100 pages and I didn't have any takers because yeah. my, my book scan wasn't good enough. It didn't matter that I had won prizes or that I had, been, that I had a schedule full of stuff to do. And I felt very anxious because I was thinking, oh, I might finish this book, and I've been told that no one wants this book. And I had to decide what kind of person am I? Am I a person to finish a book? Am I writing this book because this book needs to be written? Or am I writing this book because I have a fantasy of being published by XYZ House? Why do I do what I do? Writing something that has been pre-rejected, that will really show you what you're made of. Yeah. And that is what took so long. I felt terrible, and then I also, I had like some personal crises where people I trusted, I turned out I couldn't trust them and it made me feel like, do you really know anyone? And novel writing depends on you believing you can read people's minds. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, I really wow. can't. And it, so it just undermined me completely and I had to just like say, okay, we gotta finish the book. And then I received a, a nice, a nice size grant from the United States Artist Foundation. They called me, I was so excited. I was screaming like it was Ed McMahon on the phone. And I used that money to go away, to live, um, to go to Martha's Vineyard and stay in a friend's apartment and say, this is it. If we don't finish this book, you got to decide if you're a writer or not. And so I went to the vineyard, my little bag was cold and wet, and I wrote the book. So you allowed bullshit market conditions to dictate the course of your writing for a time, and that's why there was this delay? Look how you phrase that. And I think I prefer to say <laughs> you were very disheartened by marketing conditions and, 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 it, and it threw you off track. And Tiari, I'm so glad you got back on track. I am glad that you got <laughs> on track. That's actually a way yeah, of... Yeah, but it did. It, it hurt. I mean, I was hurt. I mean, I had rejections and I read them and I'll never do that again either. And it really, it just threw me off. And then I was like sad because of some conditions in my personal life. I just felt... I felt like I, and I had moved to New York. Yeah. You know, moving is really traumatic. Yeah. It's supposed to be on the list right after death of a loved one. So I moved. I started a new job. I had like these personal setbacks. And then I had this rejection thing. It was a lot. And when I'm really not in a good place, I don't write. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get myself together. Yeah. And then I just had to like focus and get back on. And that's what I did. So essentially, it seems to me that uh, you need to have a, very strong sense of yourself and a strong sense of confidence intermingled with the idea of just not caring about anything but the manuscript in order to get a manuscript done. I do think that the less, the more you, the less you know about the market, which is why I don't talk to my students about marketing stuff, because I feel like it, knowing about the market will never help you finish a book. I tell my students, once you get done, I will happily talk to you about things, agents, this, that, and the other. But when you're writing, all you need to think about is the story. And if I may refer to Carlson once more. Yes. 
RC told me when I was writing my second book, I was like, Ron, you know, I was, I was in my 20s. I think I was like 29 when I started my second book. I was like, Ron, you know, um, I, th- I got 100 pages. I really like it. And I'm going to send it to my agent. And he said, really? You like it? I said, yes. He said, are the characters talking to you? Yes. You feel like you know where it's going? Yes. You have good momentum? Yes. He says, then why are you going to bring the market into it? Yeah. I said to him, you're just trying to rain on my parade. But now I know what he means, that if it's going good, keep going. Don't introduce a disrupting force. So you're now not susceptible at all to any form of marketing. I'm much better about it because this book showed me that things can turn on a dime. Anything can happen at any time. But I'm also no better than to solicit market information. Like like if some were to market information were to come on my doorstep, maybe I would look at it. But I'm not going to seek out market factors when I'm trying to write my book. I'm going to, um, I'm really excited about this new book. It's historical. It's set in the 30s. And um, lots of people are writing books about the 30s right really? now. I wonder Who why. Else? I, Who else? Um, Make Karen this... Russell is writing about the Dust Bowl. Well, I'm not writing about that. Yeah. Who else? There's somebody else. I just, the last like three people, or three people I've talked See, to recently. See, this is exactly yeah. the kind of thing that hangs me up. Don't tell me that. No, no, no. There's plenty of, of material in the 30s. I'm just saying. Yeah. This this is illustrating my point. Now I'm overcome with anxiety. Oh, no, you aren't. <laughs> not really. But you see what I mean? Like, it, these yeah. things come to you. So I just try not to, I have learned try to distance myself and just make it where it's only me and the page. I'd say, I'll write the book and then we'll market it later. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you have to do. I've learned, I learned that lesson hard. I mean, it was... It was hard, but I'm glad I know it now. Well, on that note, Tiari, thanks so much. It was a pleasure chatting. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being